Dr. Pauline Boss, welcome to Exit Strategy. I thank you so much for making the time because your voice and insight is, I believe, very, very much needed in this moment. Oh, it's my pleasure to talk with you, Stephanie. And we are talking about ambiguous loss today, what it is and how we can address it. You are a renowned behavioral researcher and theorist. You first coined the term ambiguous loss in the 1970s, and you have written eight books now related to this subject. There is more biographical information that we need to save, but all those keynotes and resources will, of course, be in our show notes. So let's jump in on this important topic. Ambiguous loss. I want you to talk about what this term is and how it differs from what any of us would consider when it comes to any other type of loss, please. Ambiguous loss is a unique kind of loss that had not been named before. Maybe all I've ever done is give a name to a loss that is very troubling, but never was um, acknowledged before. Ambiguous loss is simply an unclear loss. It is a loss that has no verification, no certificate of assurance that the loss is permanent, no death certificate, no body to bury, etc. There are two kinds of ambiguous loss. One is physical and one is psychological. The physical ambiguous loss is when the person is physically absent but kept psychologically present because the family doesn't know if they are dead or alive or where they are located. So they keep them in their heart and mind and essentially are stuck, frozen in place, waiting to hear some news. Unfortunately, this is the one that it, we're seeing right now on the news, and it's heartbreaking. The second kind of ambiguous loss is psychological, where the person is there in front of you, but their mind or their cognitive abilities are gone or going. Dementia is an example of that, but so is addiction or serious mental illness, or simply preoccupation with work so that the people in the family can't talk to you. There is also an assumption that we need to keep in mind about ambiguous loss, and that is attachment. So you can't have an ambiguous loss unless you are attached to the person who is physically or psychologically missing. I think that's almost obvious, but it is the criterion for whether or not something is an ambiguous loss. You speak about what's happening right now, and let's address that in terms of the terrorist attack that took place on October 7th in Israel. These families who are in this space of not knowing where their family members or friends are, how does the loss manifest? What happens to these families, to these individuals as they are waiting, wondering? It's an impossible place to be. What is the process that they're going through in this moment? Well, that's the problem. There is no process. They're stuck. If they knew for sure that they were dead, they could begin the grieving process. Grief therapy does not work with ambiguous loss. I've told the people in Ukraine and in Turkey and now Israel that, and Hawaii as well, all of whom have had ambiguous losses lately for one reason or another. 
the fact is there's a lack of information. So the not knowing immobilizes people and children too, by the way. They're stuck not knowing. And so this is not a grief issue. This is an anxiety issue. This is a stress issue. The stress of not knowing is immense, especially for cultures that are accustomed to solving problems of knowing. And Western cultures are especially used to that. Eastern cultures, more Buddhist traditions and so on, may have a slightly easier time of dealing with the not knowing. But certainly we, and certainly Israel and Western cultures, are accustomed to solving problems. So this is agonizing and anxiety producing. So people should not talk about grief with them because they can't grieve. And in my first book with Harvard Press um, in 2000, I called it frozen grief. It could also be called disenfranchised grief, which Kenneth Doka writes about. It is not real grief. You're stuck. I think your point of them being frozen this frozen grief that they're experiencing is helpful. We want to say the right things. We want to be putting out the right messages. And that is so important to acknowledge. The ambiguous loss theoretical grounding is based in stress. It is not a medical model. You don't look for symptoms. You look for helping the person to live with not knowing. It's the only way you can lower the stress of not knowing, not having any information on your loved one who is missing at the time. There are so many people going through this at this moment, certainly in Israel and other places. The, the sad fact is that terrorists know this. And so they know that taking hostages, that creating ambiguous loss is more painful for the family and the community actually than killing people. Both are painful, both are agonizing, but keeping people in limbo of not knowing lasts longer. It is unfortunately being used globally more often, and sadly, it is barbaric. I want to talk about your book, The Myth of Closure, Ambiguous Loss in a Time of Pandemic and Change. It is your most recent book. I believe it was published in 2021 talk about the trauma and loss relating to the pandemic, because I think it's really a touch point that many people can relate to and one that people tend to continue to process. Well, it's one we all experienced. Every being on this earth experienced this particular ambiguous loss. Therefore, it was a global ambiguous loss this time where it wasn't like what I just described. It was like we didn't know what was happening at first. We knew there was a deadly virus out there around us, but we couldn't see it. We didn't know how to deal with it and so on. So we were without information and not knowing again, which was very anxiety producing and in fact produced uh, some anger as well. When people are in such a situation on such a large scale, the people who can't tolerate the ambiguity tend to go for binaries. It's a hoax. It doesn't exist or it's going to kill us. They go either way. And we saw that happening too. And that's sort of an outcome of being unable to tolerate ambiguity. 
the people who could tolerate it and who found coping mechanisms were wonderful. In fact, here in the U.S., many people were baking sourdough bread, doing physical fitness or doing puzzles. All of these end in certainty. So they were a good balm for the ambiguity that we were living in at that time. You know, you bake bread and after a couple hours, you have a wonderful outcome. It's certainty. It's mastery of the situation. And it, it is exactly the right thing to do when you're in a situation of uncertainty and ambiguity. The ambiguous losses during the pandemic were like loss of being able to be with friends, loss of the usual rituals, funerals, high school graduations, proms, the loss of being in charge of your daily routine. And the big one was the loss of trust in the world as a safe place. We may still be there. When it comes to ambiguous loss, are mental health professionals equipped to recognize and treat the loss? Do people know about it enough to understand that it is, in fact, a different type of loss? Well, there's conundrum here. Ordinary people seem to know more about it than professionals overall. Many professionals do know about it, but many do not. And let me tell you why it has taken on more likely with ordinary people who understand it quite quickly than with professionals, primarily because you cannot quantify ambiguous loss. And so organizations like APA want to have it quantified before they want to talk a lot about it. The problem is that some things can't be quantified. You can't quantify ambiguity. Ambiguous loss is a phenomenon. We can quantify its outcomes, and the researchers have done that. I don't want it, by the way, to be in the DSM, the diagnostic manuals. I do not want that because it's not a medical model. It's a stress model. But I do believe that in times of today, with earthquakes, with wars, with hostage taking, etc., professionals need to know that grief therapy does not work, that this is a different phenomenon based on stress and anxiety. It's based, the ambiguity is the culprit, not the person. The person is not weak in their mental health if they have an ambiguous loss. For the most part, the culprit is the ambiguity causing the symptoms. So we must help them psychoeducationally to live with the not knowing. And that has not been in our textbooks. The textbook I wrote in 2006 is the one that most people use around the world for professionals. I'm a big fan of all the quotes in your book. And in the second chapter of your book, which is titled The Myth of Closure, you include a quote from Mitch Albom, who wrote Tuesdays with Maury. And the quote says, death ends a life, not a relationship. Please talk about closure as a term and concept and a reality. Well, I think closure is a perfectly good word in real estate and closing business deals. And here in Minnesota, closing a road during a snowstorm. <laughs> but it's a cruel word to use in human relationships, and especially for people who are experiencing a loss. Closure is an illusion, and maybe it's a misnomer. 
What really we are looking for is not closure. We want certainty. We want certainty that the person has died. We want certainty of where their remains are. And many times that is not possible. And if, let's say, there's a murder in the family and somebody goes to court, the perpetrator goes to court and is found guilty, some people will say, well, now they have closure. No, they don't. They have justice, but they do not have closure. They are not the same words. So closure happened to be a handy word that people got stuck on. But it's very painful for people who are experiencing either a clear-cut loss like death or an ambiguous loss if you say that to them. Do not say that to them. And I encourage anyone in the media who's listening to not use that word. Anderson Cooper already knows that and makes that point. I was really inspired about how you address resilience. Resilience is a beautiful word. It gives one hope, I believe. And at one point you write that resilience is our best hope in the face of ambiguous loss. Can you speak about that and actually how you came to that realization? I was a family therapist for 45 years, but most of my clients would come with an ambiguous loss. And also I worked around the world with NGO organizations and so on for people who had kidnapping or disappearances. So I learned from them. And I learned that you can't get over an ambiguous loss much of the time. In other words, you'll never have definitive information if this person is alive or dead, or if they're coming back again, or if it's, if it's a psychological loss, if the dementia will stop and they'll be like they used to be. So most of the time, the ambiguity continues. And so there is no solution. Instead of going that direction, you go the resilience direction and you build the people's capacity to live with not knowing. This is not easy. My background is I have Swiss parents and I was taught about precision and making solutions. You can solve anything if you work hard enough. Well, sometimes you can't. The models of grief that have phases are now outdated. Kubler-Ross had Swiss parents too, so I like, I like her very much. And I did mm -hmm. read her last books. And in her last writings, she implied that caregiving and dying is messy. It is not in phases, one, two, three, four, five. So let that go, people, just let that go. The new research by Bonanno and others is that if we find meaning in loss, we can live with it. However, Finding meaning in ambiguous loss is really hard. And the meaning may be that it is meaningless, that there never will be a meaning. But most people who have ambiguous losses find a purpose, a new meaning that is in helping others not to suffer the way they did. The parents of a kidnapped child may help to change laws so that other families are alerted, that society is alerted more quickly when a child is missing. They may work for an organization or they may help others. This happens all the time. They work for a greater good because they couldn't solve their own problem. Or they do something so simple as living a good life in honor of the person who is missing, taking care of the children in honor of the parent who is missing. It can be very simple, but 
it is useful when you can't solve the problem. One of the most powerful passages I read in your book was about reconstructing identity. That was Mm -hmm. so eye-opening to me. And I'll tell you why. I think it's one of the biggest roadblocks people have when someone dies. They really believe they're going to continue to live the life that they had and be the same person that they were. And your point that you need to reconstruct a new identity was eye-opening to me because I don't think people think about that enough. The researchers in the field globally, that is the one of the six guidelines that they are finding to be the most important. So you are correct that when somebody is ambiguously lost, you have to reassess your identity. If your husband has been missing for 20 years, are you still his wife? Caregivers ask that all the time. If my loved one no longer knows who I am, are we still married? The answer always is both and. Yes, you are still married and you're obliged to treat her well. And you can go out socially. You need to go out socially. And so the both and thinking is the way to live with not knowing, to live with the ambiguity. It's the closest to the truth as you can get with ambiguous loss. So we need to remember that we hold ambiguous loss in one hand and we hold both and in the other. Yeah, he is both gone and still here, or what we're seeing on the world stage today. She has been kidnapped. She is probably dead and maybe not, is what people say. And that's comforting, as comforting as possible. If you say clearly they're dead, the people left behind will get very angry if they have no evidence. And if you say they're alive, that's not really true that you know that either. So you can say, hopefully they're alive and maybe not. Is there such a thing as normal grief? Yes, and it's what the researchers are finding now. Uh, They call it oscillation. Uh, But you could say it's, you know, ebb and flow, in and out, up and down, good days, bad days. And that goes on forever. There is no closure. But of course, the oscillations come farther and farther apart as time goes on. But even if you see something or hear some music or see a place you had a good time with the person who died or who is lost, you may still have a tear 20 years from now. And that is normal grief. You never get over it. You don't need to get over it. You don't need closure. You need to find meaning in the loss. And by the way, that meaning, like your identity, may change every couple of years as time goes on. And that's why you should talk about it with other people. It helps to make meaning if you're in a group of peers who have the same kind of loss. So going back to another quote, it truly was my favorite quote of the book by James Baldwin where he says, not everything that we face can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. Loss and change clearly are linked. Yes, and the thing is that the ambiguous losses that we've been talking about have never been in the list. Only death was. Giving it a name allows it to be acknowledged, and acknowledgement allows change. 
Nothing changes if you don't know what the problem is. And giving it a name, people now know what the problem is. And they know that the grief is frozen. The grief is stuck. It's not their fault. That is a stress and anxiety issue. It's not a mental health issue. And so knowledge helps people to change. That's why we use psychoeducation for ambiguous loss, which is actually the most effective family therapy so far. Well, Dr. Pauline Boss, you certainly gave ambiguous loss its name in the 70s. Your intelligence and your perceptions and your most thoughtful words are truly a gift. And again, your book is titled The Myth of Closure, Ambiguous Loss in a Time of Pandemic and Change, and it's clearly something all of us should read. I look forward to seeing you again soon. I hope so. Thank you. As the host of Exit Strategy, I thank you for tuning in to what I hope was an informative and illuminating conversation. I urge you to visit our show notes and there's an email listed there. So if you have any questions, send them my way. In the meantime, please share this episode with anyone you know who may be interested and subscribe to Exit Strategy. Wherever you listen to your podcasts each month, we'll renew our conversation with another topic and I'm really happy you're along for the ride. I'm Stephanie Gary and this is Exit Strategy. Thank you.